0: The following is a pre-recorded program.
1: Is God really triune or is God the Father alone? you into debates that I've done with different leaders, professors, scholars, representatives of different positions, rabbis, on a wide range of subjects. Yesterday, we looked at the issue of the charismatic gifts ceased. Today, we're going to look at the subject, Is God the Father Alone? This is a debate I had with Dr. Dale Tuggy, January 11th, 2019. I was asked to do this debate, just as I was asked to do the debate with Dr. Zacharias. And what we're doing, here's our format. We're going to play as much as we can from Dr. Tuggy's opening comments. All right. We're going to play as much as we can from my opening comments. We're going to take one segment to do each of those. Then we're going to go back and forth. The third segment, we're going to get into uh, Q&A that we exchanged between us. And then the last segment, our closing comments. So we want to give you a representative sampling of the debate. If you're listening on radio, go to our YouTube channel when you can. Ask Dr. Brown and look for today's broadcast. There'll be a link
0: so you can watch the entire debate for free. My thesis is that the God of the Bible is not the Trinity because the God of the Bible is the Father alone. The New Testament is just as monotheistic as the Old Testament, but it also tells us who this one God is. And contrary to Catholic traditions in the New Testament, the one God is not the Trinity. In the New Testament, this one God is the one Jesus referred to as our Father in heaven the one Paul calls God the Father. In the New Testament, the one God just is the Father, and the Father just is the one God. They are one and the same. This is the defining thesis of any Unitarian Christian theology, and it's contradicted by any Trinitarian theology. A Trinitarian thinks that the one God is the tripersonal God, but no one thinks that the Father is tripersonal. The Trinitarian says that the one God is the Trinity. And so, the Father gets demoted to being, in some sense, one-third of God, whether a part of God, a personality of God, a mode of God, or a person within God. The Trinitarian's theory requires that the one God is not numerically the same as the Father, but rather he must distinguish the one God, the tripersonal God, from the Father. But here, fourth-century speculations clash with plain New Testament teaching. We can observe this identification of the one God with the Father in every New Testament author. They rarely state this commitment because it was not then disputed, but occasionally they express it clearly. In John 17, 1 through 3, Jesus reveals his belief that the Father is the only true God, and if the Father is the only true God, then no one else is. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul tells us that while the pagans believe in various gods, as far as we Christians are concerned, there is one God, the Father. In John 8, 54, Jesus says to his Jewish opponents, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, he of whom you say, he is our God. Right. The God of the Jews, the only God in Old Old Testament and New Testament, is the one Jesus calls my Father. In Acts, the message preached to Jews is that the God of our ancestors has glorified his servant Jesus. In Judaism and in the New Testament, the one God is understood not to be a human being, but rather a God, in fact, the only God. In contrast, Jesus is everywhere in the New Testament portrayed as a real man. In John 8.40, Jesus describes himself as a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. The New Testament Jesus is not God. Rather, he is God's Messiah, his special human agent called the Son of God. Paul writes to Timothy that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And this one God, Paul thinks, is the Father. The New Testament explicitly states seven times that the Father is Jesus' God. And Jesus is portrayed as calling the Father my God in seven other places. These Father as Jesus' God texts are not the subject of significant interpretive, translation, or textual disputes. In the New Testament, like you, Jesus is subject to the unique God, the Father. Thus, Jesus is not taught to be the same God as the Father, or any God at all. There's only one God, the Father, and he is, Paul says, the head of Jesus, his Christ, I wanna spend the rest of my opening statement comparing two hypotheses in the light of six indisputable facts about the New Testament. The two hypotheses are first, that these authors believe the one God to be the Father alone. Second hypothesis is that these authors in the New Testament think the one God is the Trinity. If a fact is just what we would expect given the truth of one hypothesis, but that same fact would be surprising given the truth of a rival hypothesis, and that fact confirms the one hypothesis over the other. Notice that this procedure does not presuppose Unitarian theology. It doesn't presuppose any controversial thesis whatever. First fact, all four Gospels feature a mere man compatible main thesis. This is the thesis that Jesus is God's Messiah. While this thesis is plainly and repeatedly stated throughout these books, it's highlighted at certain key moments. In the first three Gospels, Jesus privately asks his disciples who they think he is, and their leader, Peter, replies, You are the Messiah. And towards the end of the fourth Gospel, John states his main thesis. These signs are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Wait. That's it. Nothing about Jesus being God, God the Son, having a divine nature, being the God-man, Jesus as second person of the Trinity. This simple thesis only mentions the man Jesus' uniquely important role as God's Messiah, saying nothing at all about his alleged deity. Is what we'd expect if the author thinks the one God just is the Father. It's not at all what we would expect if he were a Trinitarian. And this confirms that these authors are Unitarians, not Trinitarians. Second fact, in the New Testament, the word God nearly always refers to the Father, and no word in the New Testament refers to the Trinity. No word was then understood to refer to the Trinity. If the New Testament authors were Trinitarians, we'd expect them to sometimes use the word God to refer to the Trinity, but they never do. And we'd expect them to somewhat spread around the title God, around the three of them, often calling the Son or the Spirit God in addition to the Father. But this is not what we see. In the New Testament, God is nearly always the Father. All textual scholars agree on this. In a small handful of cases, no more than eight in the whole New Testament, it can be argued that God refers to the Son, the term God refers to the Son. But we know that in biblical terminology, a human who is subject to God can be referred to and or addressed using the title God. Jesus makes this very point in John 1034, quoting Psalm 82. We also see it in Hebrews 1 through 9, quoting Psalm 45. While many latter-day readers suppose that only the one God should be called God, biblical authors don't assume that. Even so, all New Testament authors are very stingy about applying the word God to anyone other than the Father. This would be very surprising if they were Trinitarians, but it's just what we'd expect if they hold that the one God is the Father alone. It's vanishingly unlikely that the New Testament authors believed in a triune God and yet had no word or phrase by which to refer to that God. The very first thing a Trinitarian will do is to coin a word or phrase to refer to the triune God as such. They didn't need to use the word Trinity. They could just coin a new use of the word God. They could talk of the heavenly three or the triple God, the divine three, etc. But we don't see any term or phrase in the Bible which was then understood to refer to a tripersonal God. These authors' lack of any word or phrase for the Trinity is exactly what we'd expect if they instead held the one God to be the Father alone. In some, New Testament God terminology reflects their thinking that the one God is the Father, and so not the Trinity. Fact number three. In the New Testament, only the Father and the man Jesus are worshipped. One would expect Trinitarian authors to authorize, model, or portray worship of the Trinity as a whole, or at least the worship of all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. But there are exactly two objects of worship in the New Testament, God and the human Son of God. This is plainly seen in Revelation 4 and 5. One might worry that two objects of worship means two gods. But Paul explicitly teaches in Philippians 2.11 that the worship we give to the exalted Jesus is to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is not a second God, rivaling God. Rather, he is God's human son, and it honors God when we worship Jesus. His exaltation to God's right hand implies that all must worship him, not as God, not confusing him with his and our God, but rather as the exalted Son of God. It's not a case, as Paul says in Romans 1.25, of worshiping the creature uh, rather than the Creator. Jesus, being a man, is a creature, yes, but in worshiping Him, we thereby worship the Creator. The one God is the Father alone. Later traditions since the late 300s AD have said that the one God is not the Father, but rather the Trinity, so much the worse for those traditions. In my view, we should learn our theology from the Lord Jesus and his hand-picked apostles. In conclusion, you might wonder, who is this guy? How did I come to these views? The answer is I was born and raised in Trinitarian churches, although they were Bible-oriented evangelical churches. We didn't particularly talk about the Trinity, except when we sang that one uh, God in Three Persons Blessed Trinity uh, hymn uh, but it was never really a, sur- a subject of a sermon. I started to actually look into it carefully when I was a graduate student at Brown, and I just assumed up, well, look, obviously all Christians believe in the Trinity. There's some crazy cultists running around and some arrogant rationalists who don't, who don't believe in things they don't understand. Um, so I'm just gonna figure this out. Christian philosophers were trying to work out a way to understand the standard formula that God is three persons in one essence. And they started working out five or six different theories about that. And I said, well, one of these has got to work. This has got to be true. It can't really be contradictory. And I was pretty surprised to learn that they all had pretty serious problems. This drove me back to the New Testament. What really shocked me is that the arguments from the New Testament to the Trinity were very weak. And then I started to look into the history of it. I discovered that there have been, since the Reformation, Protestants who thought that this is one more Catholic development that needs to be rolled back in light of the Bible. And so uh, it took me about 10 years to really fully make up my mind about it. I was very, very slow. Again, I thought one of these theories had to work, but they don't.
1: Okay, I've got to jump in now. That was Dr. Dale Tuggy. When we come back, yours truly will be up. It will be my opening comments in the debate.
2: Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, get into the line of fire now by calling eight six six three four TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
1: All right, welcome back to the special debate week. This is Michael Brown. These are my opening comments. Excerpts of them from my twenty nineteen debate with Dr. Dale Tuggy. The subject is God, the Father alone. Is He triune or is He the Father alone? So here is an extended excerpt from my opening comments. Uh, The fact is, Dr. Tuggy claims that Jesus is simply a glorified man, and I want to declare in the clearest possible terms that the Son of God of the Bible, the one we rightly worship as God, is infinitely more than a glorified man. To make him into a glorified man is to deny the clear and consistent witness of Scripture. To make him into a glorified man is to neuter the gospel, since the idea that a glorified man died for our sins is hardly a demonstration of the immeasurable love of God. To the contrary, when God sent His Son to pay for our crimes, He was giving of His very self. So again, I'm eager to rebut Dr. Tuggy's opening comments, and it's clear that a lot of his difficulties come from the fact that the Son took on human form, hence praying to the Father and having the Father as His God. But for now, in my opening statement, I'll lay out the clear scriptural case that the Son is fully divine, and since there's only one God, then God must be complex in His unity. Simply stated. This one God has revealed to himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. And if we accept the testimony of the scripture, this is the only fair conclusion. Now, for Dr. Tuggy and others, this is a logical contradiction, but the day we can fully wrap our minds around the nature of God is the day we've reduced him to our level, thereby making a God in our own image. The God of the Bible is marvelous and transcendent without beginning, without end, rightly called in Judaism the Ain Self, the Infinite One, And according to the scriptures, clearly complex in his unity. Will we accept the biblical witness or will we try to create a God based on our own limitations and perceptions? In the Old Testament, the Lord stated categorically that he would share his glory with no one. As written in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Yet we see in the New Testament, Revelation 5, that massive glory and honor are given to the Son. As Revelation records, then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Either God has gone back on his word, and another created being is sharing in his unique honor and glory, or the Son is one with the Father, equally God. And note here that all creation worships the Lamb, meaning that he himself is not created. Having interacted with religious Jews for the last 47 years, I can assure you, that if the Son did not share in the divine nature, to worship him like this would be blasphemous. That indeed would be detracting from the worship of the only God and engaging in some form of idolatry. This is not like one candle lighting another candle without the first candle losing its light. This is like the second candle becoming predominant. In this case, having millions of people praising and glorifying Jesus and to this day around the world, often without mention of the Father. If the Son is not God, then he has taken glory from the Father. What makes this all the more interesting is that throughout Isaiah 40 through 48, God repeatedly says of himself, I am, or I am he, translated into Greek as ego eimi. Yet that is the very language Jesus uses of himself in John, most decisively in John eight fifty-eight, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, but I am. So not only does Jesus share in the Father's glory, but he identifies himself with the eternal God saying, I am, or I am he, also declaring his eternal pre-existence. And just as the Lord says in Isaiah 48, 12, I am he, I am the first, and I am the last, so also in the book of Revelation, both the Father and Son are called the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. So Revelation 21:6, speaking of the Father who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Then Revelation 22:13, where Jesus says, "I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end." Also see Revelation 1:8. He is clearly and unequivocally identifying himself with Yahweh. No created being could utter such words. Only the eternal God could say, "I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Son." is the eternal God. That's why in the Old Testament, Yahweh's words remain forever, Isaiah 40, but in the New Testament, it is Jesus' words that will remain forever, Matthew 24. The Lord declared in Isaiah 43, 11, I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Yet throughout the New Testament, Jesus is hailed as our Savior. Either he's one with God, or there's more than one true Savior. Paul leaves us no doubt Referring to, quote, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in Titus 2.13. That's the most obvious and clear sense of the Greek. Jesus is our great God and Savior. We also learn from the same section in Isaiah that when Yahweh created the universe, he did it alone. As written in Isaiah 44.24, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth, by myself, yet the New Testament tells us explicitly that the Son was involved in creation. In John 1.1, uh, John uses the language of Genesis 1.1 in the Septuagint, saying that the word was in the beginning, n-r-k, just like in the beginning God created, Genesis 1.1, and explaining that what God was, the word was. And he continues, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. And John tells us it is this preexistent word, this word through which all things were created, which became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. That's why John the baptizer explained that Jesus ranks before me because he was before me, John 1. That's why Jesus said he was from above, that he came down from heaven, that he came from God and was returning to God, John 3, John 6, John 8, John 13. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 8:6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Even more emphatically, he wrote, Colossians 1, for by him, speaking of the Son, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The text is clear. The Son is eternal. The Son is uncreated. All things were created through him and for him. You really have to engage in a hopeless series of exegetical gymnastics to deny the plain sense of these words. And remember, in Isaiah, Yahweh said no one was with him when he created the universe. Yet these texts say he created all things through his son. That can only mean one thing, the father and son are one God. And that's why Jesus explained that it was his father's will, John 5, that all may honor the son just as they honor the Father. There are other texts which explicitly point to the Son's eternal preexistence. In John 17, 5, Jesus prays to the Father, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Once again, the text is clear. John also tells us in chapter 12 that when Isaiah saw the Lord's glory, meaning Yahweh in his glory in Isaiah 6, it was the Son of God he saw, the one who suffers and dies in Isaiah 53. Isaiah saw the Son of God, and the Son was called Yahweh. That's why Paul tells us explicitly in Philippians 2 that Jesus existed in the form of God, yet emptied himself and became a servant, dying for us. And that's why Paul uses a text speaking of Yahweh in Isaiah 45, 23, where God swears that every knee will bow to him and every tongue swear to him and applies the verse to Jesus, saying that every knee will bow to him and every tongue confess that he is Lord. If the Son is not deity, that's blasphemous, and it cannot possibly be to the glory of the Father. Just think if the verse were referred to an angel rather than Yahweh, it's unimaginable. Note also that Paul uses the example of Jesus in Philippians as an example of humility. He didn't take what rightly belonged to him, namely the privileges of deity, but rather emptied himself on our behalf. He who was eternally God came to earth as a servant to die for us. That's why Jesus said that he often longed to have mercy on Jerusalem, but it was not willing. Matthew 23... As a Jewish follower of Jesus, there's always been pressure on me to deny what Scripture plainly teaches, namely that Jesus, the Son, is eternal deity and that God's unity is complex. But because the word is so clear on this, I could not and would not yield to this pressure. And by the way, there's far more evidence I could bring from the Old Testament to support this, time doesn't permit. So I I urge each of you to fall down at the feet of the glorious Son and worship him as God. This will please the Father, who sent his son to be the savior of the world and who continues to work among us by his spirit. And after Paul laid out God's extraordinary plan to save both Jews and Gentiles in Romans 9 through 11, he wrote these incredible words from the Old Testament as well. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift to, whom, uh, to him that might be repaid. For from him and through him And to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So let's stop trying to put the infinite and eternal God into the tiny box of our limited minds as if we ourselves could figure out or define him or reduce him to a mathematical formula. And let's instead worship our triune God with reverence and awe. That is humility and that is wisdom. Thank you. Okay, I've got to interrupt myself there and cut out. We will be right back with Q&A between Dr. Tuggy and yours truly.
2: It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, friends, welcome
1: to the special Debate Week broadcast. This is Michael Brown. So glad you tuned in. I want to take you into debate I had January 11th, 2019 with Dr. Dale Tuggy. The question is God the Father alone. So at this point in the debate, we've both given our extended opening comments. We've both given our rebuttals. And now it's time for our back and forth Q&A, the cross-examination time, which is often some of the most interesting time within the debate itself. So. These are excerpts. This is not the full Q&A back and forth, but a representative sampling between Dr. Tuggy and me. If you look at the description on our YouTube channel of today's show or our Facebook channel for today's show, you'll get a link where you can watch the debate in full
0: online for free. Maybe you could help us out with this a little bit, just to understand your views. Uh, If you could just fill in the blank in this sentence, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three fill in the blank in God.
1: It's not something that Scripture exactly defines. So that's more of a creedal statement. Mm -hmm. I would rather just say what Scripture says, that the Father, Son, and Spirit are God, and that's how God revealed Himself to us. Some say persons, but that's using human language to describe God. Mm -hmm. To say it's three aspects of the same God, again, we're limited by human language in describing God. I'd rather use New Testament language that the Father, Son, and Spirit Mm -hmm. are all eternal God.
0: Okay, so you're just saying they're all God? Mm hmm.
1: Just okay. using biblical language, that's all.
0: Um, did I understand you to say that you think Jesus and the Father are the same God?
1: That the Father and Son are one God, yes. Okay. So, so God, the same God, God can be used, for example, to speak of Father, Son, and Spirit. Yeah. God can be used to speak of Father, Son, or Spirit because all three are God. So God can refer to God in his triunity. Or God can refer to the Father, Son, and Spirit, all are equally God. Yep. Right. Again, so, just trying to use biblical language. That's, that's all I'm good at.
0: Right. So you would agree that, let's say, uh, a minute after Jesus breathed his last on the cross, Jesus was dead. And would you agree at that moment that the Father was alive?
1: The Father was always alive. And the Son was always alive, but the human body of, of Jesus died.
0: Okay. So but Jesus. the eternal
1: son, so when we speak mm-hmm. of Jesus, we're speaking of the one who is both God and man, who is fully God and fully man. So the man died. The spirit never died. The, the, the son never died.
0: Okay, so there's I, I think, a man. I I think
1: that's pretty self-evident in Scripture. In other words, you don't, you don't crucify a spirit. Uh, so Jesus, again, we, we believe that Jesus is fully man, the man Christ Jesus. So he was born as a baby, he didn't make believe that he was crawling or make believe he was learning to all. He was fully man. And that's, that's what Philippians 2 is telling us plainly. He existed in the form of God. And this is an example of humility for us, right? He existed in the form of God, but he emptied himself. He, he stripped himself of his divine privileges and came down to earth as a servant. Fully man, suffered as a man, died as a man, rose as a man, and also always the Son of God.
0: Right, so you just said that the body died on the cross, which I don't know what it is for a body to die, other than if it's just the same thing as a man to die. Then you said a man died on the cross. It sounded like you also think there's this other self there, the eternal son. Do you have two sons? Do you have a man? And do you also have this eternal spirit? No, one God, one one, one man. I don't think I follow the question, but to, to be clear, to be clear. You said that a man. When Jesus died. hangs on the mm-hmm. cross,
1: he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Right. So I'm assuming you believe that he had a spirit. He wasn't just a physical being only. He had a spirit, right? Yes,
0: I do assume that. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And the spirit didn't die, right? Right. Oh, okay.
0: But you but Dr. Brown, you said that the Father and the Son are the same God, and you at one time you've got that same one God being dead are, and alive. And that's just nonsense. You can't be dead no and not dead at the same why? time.
1: I think because it would be much, much better if you didn't put words in my mouth, I never said the son died. I, never, I said the son didn't die, and now you say I said he did die. So I don't find that helpful. I, I mean, I, I think we get better progress if you quote me accurately rather than say things I didn't say. Yeah, just, there's only one simple. son in
0: the New Testament, and that guy died. Uh, nothing could be clearer in the New Testament than So that. did his
1: spirit die? Um, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What well, this to is spirit? my question, Tom. Okay. You can
0: ask me that in a minute.
1: All right, great. Um, so how could a mortal say, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end?
0: I take it that those are ways of asserting uniqueness. And so uh, a mortal could say that because, as it says, he's the firstborn from the dead, and he's the new Adam, and there isn't ever going to be another one of those. He's utterly unique in that way.
1: Okay, hang on. So when God says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and when Jesus says it, they mean two different things? even though it's it's within a few verses of each other, the identical words on the lips of the Father and the Son, but they mean totally different things?
0: Well, Dr. Brown, context is king, and uh, it matters who you're talking about, right? If you're talking to a guy that plays in the NBA and he says, I'm good at basketball, that means one thing. And if you ask me and I brag and I say, I'm good at basketball, which is false, by the way, um, it's just going to mean something very different, right? And so when you're talking, Revelation in no way confuses Jesus and God, by the way, And your your reading of Revelation 2 is uh, just obviously mistaken. You claim that there's a his and a he there that refer to one and the same, both to Jesus and to God. That's a total confusion. They're referring to God, and God is mentioned in that context.
1: So it says that the throne of God and the Lamb are there, and his servants will serve him.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Serve him is God and the
0: Lamb. Nope. That's an obvious misreading. So
1: I just quoted it. How did
0: I yeah, misread I have two, it? I have two uh, minutes here. So uh, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. Okay. There's God. Oh, and by the way, there's also the Lamb. Okay. God is not the Lamb. The Lamb is not God. There are two selves, two beings there. And the, ver- and the, the, the passage continues. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Right, And the very next verse, and then you're like, aha, it says his. they got to be the same he, which is a way of saying they're the same self. That's why I said if you are a Trinitarian, you're a one-self Trinitarian. The very next verse says, and there will be no more night. They need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Okay, So it's really God who's the primary and the ultimate object of religious worship in the Bible, and it's not Tuggy's theory that worshiping Jesus is to the glory of God. Is what Paul says explicitly because he's exalted. Uh, the worship that's given to him is to the glory of God the Father. Yeah, so reading through
1: Revelation 22, it doesn't say what you said it says. It does say that there's one throat of God and the Lamb, and his servants worship him who God on the Lamb. But if we, if we could just continue on this. I just read it. Right, you Go read ahead. it, and it said what I said, and then... But we'll, we'll leave it there. Folks, you can read it in the Bible for yourselves e- easily enough, okay? Um, how <laughs> I, I, I do have to say that some of this is, is beyond shocking in terms of trying to simplify things. You end up with an unbelievably confusing theology. So we focus now on Paul's praying to Jesus and the Father using a singular verb. So number one, do you pray to Jesus and the Father, and use a singular verb when praying to both.
0: Which verse are you talking about with the singular verb? 1
1: Thessalonians 3 and 2 Thessalonians 2. 1 um, yeah, Thessalonians I, three thirteen would be uh, good. 2
0: Thessalonians 2, I don't 16. have those in front of me. I don't know if there's a translation problem. You did no, there's no translation. You did problem. throw out Jude four and Titus two thirteen, where if you just look in the well, footnotes let's focus provided on by the translators, let's focus on, on yeah, these. Yeah, no, these. I do not. Uh, okay, my view about prayer is that um, the primary and the ultimate object of prayer is God, and Jesus taught us to pray to God. However, I do agree that there does seem to be some direct addressing Jesus presupposed in the New Testament, such as calling upon the name of the Lord or Maranatha, like you mentioned. And uh, no, I don't pray to God and Jesus with one he, because that's to confuse them for the same self and the same being.
1: But that's what Paul does, and though, And if they're explicitly. the same self
0: and the same being, Jesus can't be a real man.
1: Or it's one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, as the Bible says. So you don't pray the way Paul prays. First Thessalonians 3, 2 Thessalonians 2, the Greek is very explicit. You, you can dig into this as much as, as you want. It's unambiguous in the Greek, and it's gotten the attention of many a Greek scholar. But 1 Thessalonians 3, or 2 Thessalonians 2. 1
0: Thessalonians 3,
1: what? 3.13. And the Greek blameless is... Blameless
0: before... May he strengthen your hearts in holiness so that you may be blameless before yeah, so who is our saying? God may, and Father.
1: The prayer goes to Jesus and the Father. At the of the Lord Jesus. The prayer goes to Jesus and the Father, that he may do these things for us. It's, it's a singular yeah. verb. And it's to Jesus and the Father. And then in Second Thessalonians 2, it's to, uh, it's, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, it's the Father and Jesus. And in 2 Thessalonians, it's to Jesus and the Father. So you don't pray the way Paul prayed, to Jesus and the Father, or the Father and Jesus, using a singular verb.
0: I don't see, I mean, I think you're reading your own confusion of them as oneself into the text here. I don't see Paul confusing them. I see you confusing them. Right? He's distinguishing them. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Both of them, too, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't say, and. And may the Lord make you increase. I think that's Jesus. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all just as we abound in love for you. And may he strengthen your hearts in holiness so that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with his saints. So I think that he, in 13... Is the Lord that was mentioned in verse twelve? I think that's Jesus strengthening your yeah. hearts. Well, I'll tell you what—you there is pre- no praying to God and Jesus under one He here. Yeah, yeah, Where are there, you looking?
1: There, there is. So tell you what—you weren't prepared to address the Greek. Maybe in a subsequent time we can chat on the radio about that. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that liberty. Genesis forty-eight, the exact same thing—the prayer of blessing, the God of our fathers, uh, the God who was with us, the angel who redeemed, bless—that singular Hebrew and God is referred to as God, God, and the angel, unless God appeared in the angel, who's this angel to whom Jacob prays along with God in the singular? Genesis 48.
0: Who's the angel of the Lord? To I whom take Jacob
1: it, prays in mm, the singular together mm. with God in Genesis 48.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting topic, the angel of the Lord. I mean, uh, Can you oh,
1: well. just get to finish that in fairness? Because I asked what the question like late? okay?
0: Uh... What was the question? What do I make of the angel of the Lord? I mean that's no, a, no. I'm what not going to answer make that too of The fact
1: that Jacob prays to God of his fathers and the angel who redeemed him yeah. and prays in the singular to both of them says so may yeah. he bless yeah. speaking of God and the angel.
0: Right. So if you take the angel of the Lord to literally be an angel, uh, then you can talk to the angel and you're talking to God because the angel is on a mission from God and representing God to you. If the angel of the Lord is taken to be a theophany, then it's really just an appearance of God, uh, but it still could be talked about sort of as if it were a different person than God.
2: Singular, and so these, the the,
0: these are the, uh, yes, because these, I mean, these are the interpretive options open to Trinitarians and Unitarians. All right, that's it for our
1: Q&A time. Again, couldn't play all of it, but we wanted to give you some representative excerpts. We come back, you'll get the closing statements from Dr. Tuggy, the closing statements from me, and then I'll come on and give some closing reflections after that. So stay right here. We've got more coming your way in the special debate week.
2: It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
1: Hey, friends. Welcome to The Line of Fire. This special debate we we'll have be taking out into the closing statements from Dr. Dale Tuggy and from me. And our debate on the subject is God the Father alone. So our closing statements, then I'm going to come back with some closing
0: comments at the end of this segment there is no one doctrine of the trinity notice i didn't say the trinity is contradictory he assumed that i thought that and he said it i don't think there's one doctrine i think there's mandated language and people make sense of it as best they can and some of them basically think that there's three persons three beings there and some of them think it's just kind of three personalities or aspects or something like that but however which way you take it any trinity theory is a doctrine of inference tottering atop a mound of doubtful inferences drawn from relatively few scriptural texts. In contrast, we Unitarian Christians build our theology on explicit and or clear New Testament teaching. In my opening statement, I quoted some texts which clearly imply that the one God is none other than the Father. My opponent has not explained those away. He's just contradicted John 17.3. Oh, yes, well, there is another one that's true God. It's not what Jesus says, I'm gonna stick with him. I also described six observable facts about the New Testament, which would be very surprising if the authors believed in a triune God, but which makes sense if they held that the one God is the Father alone. My opponent has not adequately addressed this powerful and broad-based evidence. For some reason, it doesn't bother him that the word God is pretty much always reserved for the Father 99% of the time. He thinks as a Trinitarian, that's just kind of the thing you'd expect. I beg to differ." He has at times uh, cited texts which are difficult to interpret. He's at times cited texts like Titus 2.13, that uh, there are translation problems about those texts, and if you translate them the other way, uh, it's not a problem. So uh, there's a lot going on here, and we can't talk about all of the texts, but my position is clear, and it's what the explicit New Testament one is. The one God is the Father. Also there's the Lord Jesus, risen and exalted to his right hand, who therefore, like it says, you should worship, not as God, not as a second God, but as the Son of God. If you think a disciple should accept the theology of Jesus and his apostles, then I urge you to open your minds to this important ongoing scriptural reformation. It's a mistake to collapse God and his Son into the same self. Again, in the New Testament, in various ways, Uh, They simultaneously differ from one another. It doesn't matter whether the difference is with respect to divinity or not. A thing can't be and not be the same way at the same time. That's just nonsense. If at any time we observe that things differ, well, we know we're really dealing with two things. God sent his son. Jesus never sent his son. God and Jesus are not the same being. Son died on a cross. Father didn't. I don't know about this son that never died. That's not in the New Testament. It's not mentioned. They're a a mutually and loving, cooperating pair. They're not just modes or something like that. Still, I don't think Dr. Brown has really told you what his Trinity theory is. As I mentioned, the word Trinity is not in the New Testament. But what's more important is the idea of the Trinity. The idea of three persons sharing one divine essence is not in the New Testament either. If it were there it would conflict with the clear New Testament teaching that the one God is none other than the Father. Dr. Brown has muddied the waters by pointing out that early writers call Jesus God. Yes, they do. And these same writers tell you in no uncertain terms that the one true God, God in the deepest sense of the term, is the Father. Around the year 180, some authors do start to talk about the Trinity. But by this, they just meant this triad, this group of three, God, God's human son, and God's spirit. They didn't use the word Trinity to refer to a triune God. That only became popular in the last two decades of the 300s A.D. The idea of a Trinity is a blatant anachronism if you're reading the New Testament. Uh, If you think someone there is talking about a triune God, that's like saying that Thomas Jefferson discoursed about the Internet. The majority of Christian theologians have for a long time speculated that God is somehow triune. This is striking, to be sure, but a disciple must allow that Scripture can can overturn long-standing human traditions. Don't rely too much on the shortcut of siding with the majority. In the past, this would have burned you on many occasions. You would have sided with the majority of Jews against Paul and Peter in the year 45. You would have sided with the Catholics in 1520. In both, ca- both cases, you'd be making a big mistake. Don't make that mistake now. Be a good Berean and study the Scriptures to see if what I've argued is really so. Thank you.
1: I, I do find it interesting that Dr. Uh, Tuggy had a prepared final statement which said that I didn't respond to his arguments before the debate even happened, but we'll put that aside. Uh, I go with the God of the Bible and completely categorically reject the God created by Dr. Tuggy. He has two gods. You can call Jesus your God, but he's not really the same God. You can worship him as God, but he's not really the same God. You can give him the same glory as God, but he's not really the same God. When the Father says, I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, it means one thing. But when the Son says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the first and the last, it means something totally different. I'll stay with the God of the Bible and the plain sense of Scripture, which does not need a philosophy professor or anybody to explain to you. Scriptural witness is clear. The Son is the mighty God. He is God. All these, everyone has chapter and verse. With an eternal throne, He and the Father are one. The Father is in Him. He's in the Father. He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. All things were created by Him and for Him. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is the great God our Savior, Jesus the Messiah, and we are saved by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus the Messiah. He is God over all, blessed forever, the radiance of God's glory through whom the universe was created. Now, we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. There you have it. Not baptized in the name of God, and by the way, it's this Jesus guy who's pretty good, but he's not really God. He is God, but he's not really God. You can call him God, but he isn't God. No, no, Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. The fact that I'm accused of muddying the waters by quoting the disciples of the apostles who believe that Jesus was eternal deity, I don't know what kind of mud that is. That's truth, verifying, bearing witness to what was read. And Psalm 102, quoted in Hebrews 1. Oh my! Here are the words. This is, I'm reading from Hebrews 1. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. Dr. Tuggy says that is referring to another God and a new creation. That's not eisegesis, reading something into the text that's not there. That's imaginary interpretation. And from those of you who came and supported Dr. Tuggy, reconsider, reconsider. John 12, which was not addressed, not even at any point in attempted rebuttal, John tells us that Isaiah saw Yahweh, Isaiah 6, and it applies that same character, that same person to the one who suffers and dies for us in Isaiah 53. It really is unambiguous. And most translators and commentators would agree, 1 John five twenty, this refers to Jesus as the true God. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. You know, you, you've heard arguments to try to show what's reasonable and not, and, and I'm not a philosopher, I just stayed with what the text says, the plain sense of the text. I believe in one God who has eternally existed and made himself known to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. There's a gentleman named Vladimir Susiets who, who just sent something over. Uh, if we want to use some of the same logic, quote, logic we heard tonight, well, Jude verse four says that Jesus is the only sovereign and Lord of Christians. That's one. Two, Unitarianism, Dr. Tuggy's position, is true. These are two suppositions. Three, since only one person is God, as such the Father and Son do not share attributes, the Father could not possibly be our only sovereign Lord. If the Father is not our only sovereign Lord, he cannot possibly be God. So either Unitarianism is false or the Father is not God. Well, it's it's a cute little layout and syllogism there. But I would urge you, friends... Don't buy these bogus ideas that Colossians 1, speaking of the Son being before all things and the one through whom all things are created, is speaking of a future creation. Don't buy this nonsense that when the Son says, I am the first and last, Alpha and Omega, beginning, and end, that he doesn't mean that he's eternal God. Don't believe anyone that tells you when the Son says, before Abraham was, I am, using the divine word, same as you'd have, in Exodus, the third chapter where God reveals himself. Don't believe anyone that tells you he didn't mean what he said. Jesus meant what he said. Paul meant what he said. John meant what he said. The Bible means what it says. The Son is eternal God. The Son, the Father, Spirit, one God, that is who we worship, and I will give my blood for that God. Thank you. All right, friends, I hope you found these excerpts to be helpful, educational, and as as you'll hear me say throughout this week, read the word for yourself, study the Bible, ask God for insight. It's one thing if you're just having a philosophical debate with someone, it's, it's one thing if you're one person says the Quran is, is, is the holy word of God and another says the Bible and you're having these kinds of debates or, or someone who doesn't believe in God at all and having all kinds of discussions. It's another thing when, when both parties involved say we believe the Bible is God's word. So I want to encourage you to watch the entire debate. Just go to my website, Ask Dr. Brown, ask drbrown.org, and type in Tuggy, T U G G Y. You can watch the entire debate for free. I believe you'll find it really eye opening. And of course, the scriptural evidence to me is so overwhelming. On both of the points that were discussed yesterday and today, yesterday was more in house, two believers differing. Today, there'd be a question of whether Dr. Tuggy's views could be considered within the household of faith, I would say sadly, no. But I encourage you, dig, study, look at the scriptures, come to your own conclusions, and follow
2: God no matter what.
0: Another program powered by The Truth Network.